Good morning, Bellevue family, and it is an honor to be here. I love your pastor and his wife, and I love this church. And let me say on a personal note, thank you for giving me the honor of serving you at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, God is doing many wonderful things there. And one example that I think would encourage you, a few years ago, in God's kind providence, he led me to a man that had been saved uh, in Iran through Southern Baptist missionaries. Uh, He'd been arrested a number of times and eventually had to leave the country, Uh, came to America to uh, serve, but also to get additional education. And in God's kindness, he came to Southeastern and said, I have a real heart for my Farsi-speaking family. And uh, so we began to pray and think about what we could do. And long story made short, uh, Southeastern today offers in Farsi an online Bachelor of Arts degree, and also just began an online master's degree, all in Farsi. And today we have 1,700 persons taking classes in Afghanistan, Iran, Kazakhstan, Turkey, and America, all in Farsi. And God just did it. God just did it. And so we have a real heart and passion for the nations and the Great Commission, which is another reason why I feel so at home when I'm ever here uh, at Bellevue Baptist Church. I want you this morning to take your Bible and join me in the shortest book of the Bible. And I know all of you are already making a beeline to 3 John. Now, a little Bible trivia. There are actually five one-chapter books in the Bible. Uh, There is the book of Philemon. Uh, the book of Jude, second and third John, and Bible trivia time. What is the other one chapter book in the Bible? That's right. Thank you, brother. Obadiah. And so there are five of them, but the shortest of all is the letter of third John and a passage, a book that I have simply entitled, Are You on Mission with God? Let's hear the word of the Lord beginning in third John verse one. The elder To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, it would be wonderful if the book ended at verse eight, but it doesn't. Verse nine, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. 
Demetrius, he's received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. And then John concludes, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. Today, we might say, I didn't want to make a phone call. Uh, I didn't want to send a text message or drop a note on Facebook. That, that wouldn't be good enough. Verse 14, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. And in the context of this letter, these words are very important. Peace be with you. And the friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. All of us in this room today have a very valuable possession. It's a very interesting possession and because it goes with you wherever you go, but also it goes where you don't go. Furthermore, what you think of this very valuable possession may not at all be what other people believe or think. Say, so what are you talking about, Danny? I'm talking about your reputation, the estimate that people have of you, the way people evaluate you, what people think about your character, your integrity, your standing as a person. And folks, let's just be very blunt. Your reputation can be good or bad. It can be positive or negative, but be assured of this. All of us have a reputation. People watch you and people will talk about you often behind your back. And you need to understand that people indeed look at you and they form an opinion about you and you cannot escape your reputation. It precedes you, it goes with you. In fact, most of us, our reputation will even continue after we are dead and gone. Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher in London, understood how important our reputation is to the cause of Christ and the gospel. And here's what Spurgeon said about this important issue. The eagle-eyed world acts as a policeman for the church. It becomes a watchdog over the sheep, barking furiously as soon as one goes astray. Be careful. Be careful of your private lives and I believe your public lives will be sure to be right. But remember this, it is upon your public life that the verdict of the world will very much depend. So as we begin to look at these verses this morning, let me put three questions before you for careful consideration. Question number one, what do you think about yourself? In those moments where you are self-reflective and honest, what do you think about you? Second question, what do you really believe other people think about you? If I had the opportunity to talk to your mate, to your children, to your parents, uh, to those who are closest to you, what would they say they think and believe about you? But number three, and most importantly, what does God think about you? The one who knows every thought, Every emotion, every action, nothing is hidden from his omniscient gaze. What does God think about you? And would God say this? I believe Danny Aiken. I believe Steve Gaines. I believe this man, this woman. They are on mission with God. 
Well, as we walk through these verses, we're going to see two men that were on mission with God, one by the name of Gaius and one by the name of Demetrius. But we'll see another man who was absolutely opposed to the things of God and was doing irreparable damage in a local church in the first century. This book is easy to outline because it revolves around the lives of three men, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And so let's just jump in and walk through the verses and note about what God's Word says about each of these men. First of all, there is this man, Gaius. And I describe Gaius as a man with the right passions. In other words, Gaius was on mission with God. And God's passions lined up, or no, Gaius' passions lined up well with God. And this is true in particular for four very important reasons, characteristics that I would pray would be true in my life, but also true in every one of your lives as well. Number one, Gaius was a man who was living spiritually. He was living spiritually. Look at verse one, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now remember, John is an apostle, but he is writing to a dear friend, and so he doesn't pull rank, but rather he refers to himself as an elder. Now, yes, in the Bible, the word elder, presbyteros, is often used for the leadership position in the church. The, the, the elder, the pastor, the overseer, words that are used interchangeably to talk about the leadership of the church. But John, by now, is in his 80s, maybe in his 90s. And so John is an aged man. He is an older man. And so he says, uh, Gaius, uh, granddaddy. Granddaddy is writing to you, and you are beloved to me. In other words, you're dear to me. In fact, he says, I love you in the truth. The idea is I truly and genuinely love you. And then he ushers, very interestingly, a one-verse prayer in verse two. By the way, your pastor, anytime he signs one of his books or signs someone's Bible, he will always put in that particular Bible and under his name, 3 John, verse two. And he does so because of the wonderful prayer that John prays for Gaius. And look at what he writes. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, here's the context. John, who is probably back at Ephesus, has sent out missionaries. And these missionaries, as they have gone out, would look for a place to stay. And in the process, a number of them had come in contact with this man named Gaius. Well, as we'll see in a moment, they went back to the mother church and they gave a mission report. And in the process, they shared with John, by the way, we met this man named Gaius. I think that you know him. And as we're about to see in a moment, John knew him very well. John had led him to Christ. And so John says, well, how's he doing? And they said, oh, Gaius, he is a, Gaius is a wonderful man, an unbelievable follower of Christ, but he's having some health problems. He's been ill. And so John, in finding out that he had been sick, simply says, well, I want you to know something. I prayed for you, and I prayed that all may go well with you. And this is the amazing prayer, that you may be in good health. How? As it goes well with your soul. Now, reflect on that just a moment. Imagine this morning that I were to pray that prayer for you, or you were to pray that prayer for me. Let's pick on me. And you were to pray, dear Lord, I want you to bless Danny physically, 
to the same exact degree that he is healthy spiritually. Now, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, if you prayed that prayer for me, would I suddenly be full of muscles and vigor and all of that? Or would I suddenly begin to kind of fall over? And might it be that I would suddenly hit the deck and you'd have to call 911 to get someone up here to to try to revive me because I'm literally on the verge of death because actually, though you can't see it, God can. And my soul is not where it needs to be. Well, John had no doubt about the spiritual health of Gaius. And he could say, Gaius, I'm praying for you. And I know you've been sick, but I want you to know something. I'm asking God to bless you and to bless you physically to the same degree that you're healthy spiritually because Gaius was a man who was living spiritually. Now, you might say, well, how do we know that? Well, let's just continue. Note secondly, that not only was he living spiritually, he was walking truthfully. Verse three, John writes, I rejoice greatly when the brothers, these missionaries came and they testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. And then John reinforces verse three in verse four. I have no greater joy than to hear, now watch this, that my children are walking in the truth. The missionaries came back and they gave a report. And yes, they shared with John that Gaius was not doing well physically, but they also said, but I wanna tell you something, he loves our Lord. He loves God's word. In fact, I dare say you could characterize Gaius' life as a man who is walking continually in the truth. Now, that's an interesting idea, walking in the truth. I thought truth is something we believe. Well, it is. But in the Bible, truth is often something you live. Vance Habner was a wonderful North Carolina evangelist, been with the Lord now for a number of years, but he was very witty. Uh, very insightful, and Dr. Havner used to say this, what you live is what you really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. And I think he's right. What you live is what you really believe. And everything else is just so much religious talk. Well, Gaius was not a man who just talked. Gaius was a man who walked, and he walked in the truth. That's why John knew that he was a spiritual man. But then number three, he was also a man who served faithfully. Look at verses five and six. Beloved, dear friend, it is a faithful thing. The idea is it's a good thing you do. In all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, I know you had never met them. You did not know who they were before they showed up at your doorstep. But they, verse six, testified to your love before the church. And so let me just say, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy fitting of God. The idea is just keep doing what you're doing. Now, let me give you the context. John, as I said a moment ago, is probably back at Ephesus. Ephesus was the major city in Asia Minor, a perfect launching pad to evangelize Asia Minor and beyond thinking of the missionary journeys of Paul, for example. So John had sent out missionaries. Now, in the first century, uh, there were no, I stayed last night at a very, very nice Hampton Inn. No Hampton Inns, uh, no Comfort Inns, 
No Hiltons. They didn't even have a Motel 6 back then. It was not uh, easy when you traveled. What did you do? Well, you hopefully found a family member or maybe a friend, but if not, then just go ahead and plan on sleeping at night under the stars because you would not stay in a hotel because number one, there were not many of them. And number two, they were not exactly the kind of places that were safe that you wanted to be located in. So here these missionaries go out and by God's divine providence, they run into a man by the name of Gaius and they find out that immediately there is a connection after all. Gaius had been led to faith by Christ. You say, how do you know that? Back up there in what he said in verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In other words, sometime in the past, God had allowed John and Gaius' past to cross. And John had been a faithful witness as he always was. And he had shared the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And on some occasion, Gaius had repented of his sin and put his faith in Christ. And then John did what? He discipled him. He poured his life into him. And then again, in God's province, they were separated. And so perhaps John had not heard anything about Gaius for a number of years. But after these missionaries come back, they give a report and they talk about what a wonderful, spiritual, godly man he is. But then they say, by the way, John, when we showed up at his house, Gaius said, my home is your home. And God said, my food is your food. My bed is your bed. And he brought us in and he cared for us. He fed us. He prayed with us. And as we're gonna see in just a moment, when we left, he financially assisted us on the way as we continued our service in mission for King Jesus. And John basically says, Gaius, you just keep on doing what you're doing. I wouldn't change a thing about the way you're living your life. You're walking in the truth. You're living spiritually, and oh, how you are serving others faithfully. And so Gaius was a man living spiritually, walking truthfully, serving faithfully. But number four, he was also a man who was giving generously. Verse seven, for they, that is these missionaries, these brothers, they've gone out for, and this is the only time in Third John that our Lord is referred to, and it's very interesting. He says, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. The sake of the name. Now you say, why is that interesting? Well, first of all, it's a shorthand, of course, for the name of the Lord Jesus. But now in the first century, as persecution was breaking out in different parts of the Roman Empire, you might come across someone that you wonder if they are a brother or sister in Christ, but you've got to be careful. Uh, just like in very uh, untoward and unsafe countries today, you have to be cautious. Uh, you have to be careful. And so they would simply say, are you a follower? They wouldn't ask if you were a Christian. That becomes later. They would ask this, are you a follower of the name? Acts 4.12, there's only one name whereby we must be saved. 1 John 2, 2, he talks about the fact that we are saved through the name. And so John says, they went out for the sake of the name. Now watch this. And they accepted nothing, not a penny from the Gentiles. Now normally, the word Gentiles, it's the Greek word ethne. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's translated by the word nations. In the Great Commission text, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the what? 
nations. It's the Greek word ethne. But here it's translated Gentile, but here it's probably not being used in an ethnic sense. Rather, it's being used in a spiritual sense. In other words, they went out for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they did not accept a penny from the lost. In other words, brothers and sisters, and I know this church does this, we don't finance God's work on the backs and with the money of lost people. God's people take care of God's business. Amen? Amen. In fact, let me just be very clear. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, Number one, let me say thank you for being here today. You honor us with your presence. Number two, let me be very, very clear. We don't want your money. We don't want your money. You say, well, Danny, you don't understand. I came today with the intent of putting a $1 million check in the offering plate. You keep it. You keep it. You say, well, what would the pastor say to what you just said? Steve Gaines would say, amen. Because we don't need your money. We don't want your money. In fact, we don't want anything from you but you. And the, and the fact of the matter is, we have something to give you that's much more valuable than any financial amount you might put in the offering plate, and that is known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, keep this in mind. In survey after survey after survey after survey, when lost people are asked this question, what do you think the church wants from you? Guess what the number one answer is every time overwhelmingly? They want your what? Money. Now, why they think that, I don't know. But I want us to make sure that we communicate clearly to them, we're not out to get your money. We're out to give you the greatest gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they went out, not asking for a dime, from lost people, and that's why Paul then can say in verse 8, therefore, in light of this truth, we ought to support people like these. Why? Because when we do, we become fellow workers for the truth. My wife and I have had the wonderful privilege because of what I do, God calling me to be president of a seminary. We've had the wonderful privilege to travel all over the world to work with missionaries, uh, we have been in Brazil and Cuba and Mexico and Turkey and Thailand and North Vietnam, and I could go on for a long, long time. But actually, folks, I've been in every country on the globe. I've been in every country in the world. You say, how'd you pull that off? Physically, you've been there? No, no, no. Not physically, but through my support. You see, my wife and I, like I hope many of you, support missions. Uh, we seek to give sacrificially to get the gospel to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And I'm just being true to what the Bible says. When we support people like these, we become fellow workers for the truth. In other words, all of us should pray that we would reach the nations. All of us should give that we will reach the nations. And because we give, others can go. And when we do, we become fellow workers for the truth. And Gaius, he was a man with the right passions. Now, as I said earlier, I wish the book ended here, but it doesn't.
And if Gaius was a man with the right passions, we're now introduced to a scallywag by the name of Diotrephes. And if I characterize Diotrephes, I would say this, he was a man with a harmful agenda. A man with a harmful agenda. Now you say, why would you say he is a man with a harmful agenda? Four reasons. Number one, beware of prideful ambition. Beware of prideful ambition. John says in verse nine, I have written something to the church, probably a lost letter that we do not have. It was not inspired and therefore it is not in our canon of scripture. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, now don't miss this, who likes to put himself first. Who likes to put himself first. Some translations have it this way, Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence. Who loves to have the preeminence. Now, that ought to ring something in your mind, those of you that have been students of the Bible for a long time. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, in this beautiful hymn about the Lord Jesus, there Paul writes, in all things, he, that is the Lord Jesus, is to have what? The preeminence. Can you believe it? Diotrephes wanted the place in the church that rightly belongs only to Jesus. And he was driven by a prideful ambition. He was one of these kind of guys who said, my way or the highway, my way or the highway, doesn't matter who gets run over, doesn't matter who gets hurt, my agenda trumps everything. And he was driven by prideful ambition. But secondly, we need to learn to submit to proper authority. The latter part of verse nine, Diotrephes is said to what? Not acknowledge our authority. Not acknowledge our authority. Now, who's writing these words? The apostle John. And John is saying to Gaius and those who read this letter why he rejects the authority of an apostle. Now, that's, that just blows me away. You say, why so? Well, let me give you an example. I am so honored to be here today because I love this church. I love your pastor. I'm just so grateful for your history and heritage. But imagine that Pastor Gaines, Brother Steve, had been able by some miracle, and it would take a miracle, to arrange that this morning the preacher of the hour was the Apostle John. Now, I want to ask you a question. It's the only time I'll ask for audience participation, but I want you to participate. And you won't hurt my feelings. Let me say that in advance. If the Apostle John were going to preach this morning, how many of you think there might be a few more people here than are here? Would you, would you raise your hand? Oh, yeah. There's no question. In fact, as big as this auditorium is, it ain't big enough. No, we'd have had to try to locate, even in this horrid uh, Memphis heat, uh, a stadium. And even then, I'm willing to wager that if the Apostle John was the preacher of the hour, no facility would be large enough to accommodate everyone that would want to attend. But there's one guy who would not have shown up, Diotrephes. And Diotrephes would have said, why do I need him? He's an old man. He's past his prime. Haven't they shipped him out? He's got nothing that we need. And not only was he driven by prideful ambition, he would not bring himself under the authority of an apostle, the apostle John. But it gets worse. 
Number three, don't lie about others to further your agenda. Don't lie about others to further your agenda. Verse 10, John says, so if I come, and the implication is I will, I'll bring up what he's doing. Well, what's he doing, John? Well, the ESV says he is talking wicked nonsense. Some translations have it, he is slandering us with malicious words. The message, Eugene Peterson says, he is spreading vicious rumors. In other words, for the diatrophies type, I'm not gonna let the truth get in the way of my agenda. And if I have to lie and misrepresent to get my way, so be it. In his mind, the end justifies the means. And brothers and sisters, let me be crystal clear. That's never true for the Christian. God cares both about the means and the ends. And even if the end is a good goal, you better make sure you get there the right way. And Dr. Feast said, nope. And I'll lie about John and others to make sure I get my way. But then number four, don't be a bully and mistreat others. Don't be a bully and mistreat others. Verse 10 ends, not content with that. Not content with what? Well, talking wicked nonsense, rejecting John's authority, seeking to be first in the church. Not content with that. That's not enough. He refuses to welcome the brothers, the missionaries. And not only that, he stops those who wants to. And not only that, evidently he had a lot of pull and a lot of power because he can excommunicate them. He puts them out of the church. You talk about a man who did not have a God agenda. You talk about a man who was not on a on mission for God. Here he is. Now, a million dollar question is always raised at this point. Who in the world was this dude named Diotrephes? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. Was he a pastor? Maybe. Was he a deacon? Maybe. Was he the leader of a very powerful, influential family in the church? Maybe. Was he the wealthiest man in town that was a member? Of the Maybe. We don't know. And God doesn't tell us why. Because God wants us to be reminded that the diatrophies types, they come in all shapes and sizes. All shapes and sizes. And what God wants us to know is no matter who they are, you allow a diatrophies to worm his way into a position of authority in your church and he will kill the great commission spirit and passion of that church every single day time. And Dr. Fees was a man with a harmful agenda. But number three, and I'm so glad that John ends it this way, Demetrius is a man with a good testimony. A man with a good testimony. John uses what we call a sandwich argument. A sandwich argument. So what do you mean? Well, in the middle is a bad piece of meat named Diotrephes. But on one side is a good piece of bread named Gaius. Now, on the other side is a good piece of bread, a man named Demetrius. And Demetrius is, I think, probably one of the missionaries. And also, he's probably the one that brought this letter and delivered it to Gaius as well. Now, two things are affirmed about this brother named Demetrius. Number one, be a good example. Be a good example. Verse 11, beloved, dear friend. Do not imitate. By the way, that's the only imperative word of command in the book. It's also in the present tense. 
And because it's an imperative with a negative in the present tense, it may imply stop doing something. Stop an action that is in progress. So it's possible that what he is saying is, beloved, stop imitating evil, but make sure you imitate what is good. Now, why in the world would John need to warn us about imitating people who are evil? I'll tell you why. They're usually powerful and influential. Let's take Diotrephes, for example. I bet you that guy was very eloquent. I bet you he could make irrefutable arguments. I bet he made a big impression. But if you would cut through the surface fluff and get underneath, you would see a very evil, wicked man. Furthermore, John knew this. We all imitate somebody. Say, no, I don't. Yes, you do. We all have heroes. We all have people we admire. We all have people we look up to. And John would say, make sure you have the right examples. Don't imitate. By the way, that Greek word is the word mimitate. We get our word mimic from. So you could translate this way, beloved, don't mimic what is evil, but mimic, imitate what is good. Why? Well, a very simple principle. Whoever does good, whoever's life is characterized, by the goodness of the gospel is from God. But whoever's life is characterized by evil, well, it may be that they don't even know God. They have not even seen God. Another question I'm often asked when I teach on this passage, Danny, do you think that uh, Diotrephes was a Christian? And my quick answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But then I can tell you this. I think John had his doubts. John had his doubt because it seems to me that when he talks about someone whose life is characterized by evil, the person on the radar screen is this guy named Diotrephes. But then look at what he says in verse 12. I love this. Demetrius, he has received a good testimony from three sources. Number one, he's received a good testimony from everyone. Number two, like Gaius, he's received a good testimony from the truth itself. And number three, following the principle of Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony, it is true. By the way, have you ever stopped to reflect that Jesus had a testimony in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, those who hated him said, he's a friend of sinners. They meant it as a criticism, but we know it's a compliment. And then in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, the Bible says he always went about what? Doing good, doing good. He had a reputation just like all of us have a reputation. But let me close with this. He says there in verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, from everyone. I have that marked in my Bible. You say, why? Well, think about it. There's no question that Demetrius rubbed elbows with lost people. Did all the lost people that he knew and interacted with, did, did they love his Jesus? No. Had they trusted in Jesus? No. Were they fans of Christianity? No. But when it came to Demetrius, they had to acknowledge this is a man 
of absolute integrity. This is a man who keeps his word. This is a man whose life is characterized by good. This is a man, I like to say it this way, if he was my next door neighbor, it wouldn't bother me because he's the kind of man that I could call at three o'clock in the morning in a crisis and he would be at my front door at 3.05. There's a man like that in my life. In fact, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this man. He died when I was 14. He had a fifth grade education. Grew up in a very, very difficult home. But he was without any question one of the godliest men I believe I've ever known in my entire life. And that man was my granddaddy. My granddaddy Galloway was a simple farmer in Douglasville, Georgia. Fifth grade education, very poor. But everybody that knew Charlie Galloway knew here was a man who walked with God. In fact, when my granddaddy had been dead more than a decade, I was invited to come preach at the little country church in Douglasville, Georgia called Victory Baptist Church. You can go there today and up on the hill, there's a small grave center and up there is my granddaddy, my grandmother, my mom, and my dad. And so when I was introduced that morning to preach, I didn't get a nice video like Brother Steve did. But the pastor got up and said, well, this morning we are blessed to have as our preacher, and this is exactly what he said, Mr. Galloway's grandson. Oh, his name is Danny Aiken. <laughs> and then he said, how many of you remember Mr. Galloway? And almost every hand in that church went up. Now think about this. He's been dead a decade. But everybody remembered Charlie Galloway. And that pastor went on to say, what a wonderful, sir. by the way, I didn't add, he was the church janitor for a season too. So you say, so those who've made the biggest impact on your life, not all these PhDs you work with, nope. Not all these scholars you studied under, nope. Just a very simple farmer with a fifth grade education who loved Jesus with all of his heart and had a good reputation with everyone because he was on mission with God. Brothers and sisters, it is the gospel that saves. But those who deliver the gospel will get a bigger and better hearing if they too have a good reputation with all.